we've been talking about Jesus in this season. In the church year, this is the season of Lent. And it's a season where we reflect and we look back on the life of Jesus and we, we pay attention to the fact that Christ's presence here on earth was an act of sacrifice for us. <clears throat> and we take that seriously. The great thing about the season of Lent is it's not just a season of reflection and sobriety when we, you know, we're really sober and we say, well, we, we feel the grief of Christ. But it's, it's interrupted each Sunday. So there's, there's 40 days of Lent between Ash Wednesday and Easter Sunday. But if you start counting the days, you're going to go, wait a minute, there's like 46, 47, actually. Because we interrupt that with Sundays. And our belief is that we walk through the week in ways that are uh, demonstrating our self-denial. In ways that we pull back from all that we could do. And then on Sunday, we, we stop and we remember the day of resurrection. And we remember that Christ not only suffered, but he won. And he's a victorious Christ as well. And, and we see that in the grave. And so each week we pause on the day of resurrection, the first day of the week. And we remember that God is alive, that Christ rose again. But we remember that he was victorious even in life before he died and was resurrected. And uh, <clears throat> we're going to talk about how he did that a little bit today, how he pushed back against the things that the world accepted and the things that the world loved at the time and how he pushed back in that. Um, I, I told you last week, uh, our church up in, way up in northern Kansas, Osborne, Kansas, Pastor Isaac, I saw him yesterday, they're, they're going through the same series that we are, and I've got to give him credit for the, the graphic. Uh, he's just really talented on the computer, so I asked him to send it to me, and they're doing some great stuff. I, I want to tell you, and just catch up, last week we talked about how Jesus was human, that he was fully God, and the week before that we talked about how he made these claims, he, he made these statements about being equal with the Father. And then last week we talked about how he was entirely human though, and he, he lived in a human body that bled, that got hungry, that got tired, and that was susceptible to death. And I, I called the sermon, Oh, the Humanity. And Pastor Isaac, he, he has a great sense of humor, and he went out on the internet, and he found this picture of a manatee. It's this rainbow-colored humanity, and it says, oh, the humanity, and I get it, hue, rainbow colors. It's great humor. Wish I was that creative, but you do too. <laughs> Today we want to shift gears a little bit, and we want to remind ourselves that, that Jesus did things during the time that he lived here on earth, <clears throat> that really disrupted the patterns and the customs and the culture of the time. There were some things that Jesus did that were, that were incredibly radical, and people around him took issue with that, sometimes grave issue. And we want to look at that because we want to be people who imitate Christ but we don't want to just take license to say, you know, since Jesus was a disruptor, I get to just go around and cause chaos. How cool is that? 
No, we want to do it in ways similar to the way Jesus did it that disrupt things that really should be disrupted. So I want to uh, begin this morning by asking you a question that some of you have probably walked around at some point in your spiritual journey. What would it be like if Jesus were here today? What would it be like if Jesus walked in the room right now and sat down in one of these chairs? Would it be any different to us? Would we even recognize him? Would he sit there quietly and let us go about the patterns of our worship? Or would he say something that would disrupt the service or do something that would disrupt the service and I would never get the control of the way things are going on a Sunday morning back again? Some of you are probably going, yes, Lord, come. (laughs) Here's the thing, and, and, and as I've walked around this thought, it becomes a little bit uncomfortable to me because if Jesus were to walk into the room, there are probably things I'm totally comfortable with doing that he would just say, stop. Stop doing that. There are probably things that I am quite at home with that he would say, you mind if I change that? In fact, I, I think Jesus would probably be the kind of guy that would come along and take something like a ritual that we have and just kind of make it a little bit disjointed. For those of us that have control issues, that it would just kind of eat at us and go, you know, that doesn't look right, Pastor. That's not in the center. There's not symmetry. This doesn't seem to fit my idea of what's appropriate. And Jesus would just go, yeah, that's okay. That's all right. Because one of the things that Jesus did was to remind us over and over again that we are called to relinquish control to him. So as we, as we build on that idea of what would Jesus do if he were here today, I ask a follow-up question. What kind of sins of ours would he choose to confront? Because, you know, Jesus spoke an awful lot to the people who claimed to follow God. In fact, he spoke far more often to those who were considered the believers of the time than he did to those who were outside the kingdom. And so what would he say about you and I? What are the things that he would come up next to us and put an arm around us and go, hey, you know, can we talk about this stuff? What sins of ours would he start to meddle with? Um, You know, at the beginning of the year, I preached a series on food and the spirituality of food. And Steve Rue, he's not here today, so I'm going to pick on him a little bit. He was walking in late for church, and he heard me say something about what Jesus has to say about obesity. And he said it almost arrested him mid-step. Do I even want to go in? Or is it time to go to the restaurant? What sins of ours would he come alongside and say, can we work on this stuff that you pretend isn't even there? Or maybe the next way of looking at it is, where would Jesus come in and make a mess where we think we've got everything in order? 
Where we think, you know, we've, we've put things right in a way that we can manage so that life is negotiable to us. And Jesus would go, hey, wake up at three o'clock in the morning and pray with me. That's really inconvenient, you know. One of you shared with me that you spent a night this week, couldn't sleep because of your burden for somebody else. <laughs> he makes a mess, doesn't he? Or how would he conduct himself in ways that we would go, uh-uh, that's not right. That offends me. Would he interrupt my sermon? Would he interrupt our songs? Maybe not, but he would probably say things that would really penetrate deep inside and get at stuff we don't want to mess with. So as we look at Jesus the Disruptor, I want to look at a passage of Scripture. It's somewhere in Scripture. (laughs) Trust me, it's in the Bible. Or on the internet, I don't know. Um, actually, this is, uh, I believe this is from, thank you, Matthew 11. Uh, it, our, our graphics stole my reference. Matthew eleven sixteen through 19. Oh, Joelle, you're going to, look at her go. That's better. Just leave it. I can read that. So Jesus is talking to his followers and he says, to what can I compare this generation? What are these people like that are living here around me? It's like children playing a game in the public square. They complain to their friends. We played wedding songs and you didn't dance. So we played funeral songs and you didn't mourn. For John didn't, he's talking about John the Baptist. For John didn't spend his time eating and drinking and you said he's possessed with a demon. The Son of Man, on the other hand, feasts and drinks, and you say, he's a glutton and a drunkard and a friend of tax collectors and other sinners. But wisdom is shown to be right by its results. Now this is a weird, I I know, this is a strange passage from the Gospels that we probably don't quote very often, but I really like this because Uh, There are some things in it that tell us how God shakes the conventions, the way that we do things. And he tends to meddle with stuff that we think is okay, that he's not okay with. He really does not like to have to fit our agenda. And in fact, instead, he calls us to fit his agenda. The way that the, the great writer and martyr Dietrich Bonhoeffer said it was the call to discipleship in Jesus Christ is the call to come and die. I don't think you can put it in more graphic terms than that. If we're going to imitate Jesus, there's stuff that we hang on to, hold on to, build into our lives that's got to be put to death, it's got to be sacrificed and laid aside. And that's the kind of disruption that Jesus does. And it's not just personal with you and I that that God's saying, hey, I want to do this stuff in your life. It's also cultural with stuff that Christ wants to do in community, in society. So he wants to shake these conventions. And he says, you know, this generation, you people that are around him there in Palestine at that time, 
He said, it's like your children, you're out playing a game out in a public square. You're out in the public and you're playing a game and you sing wedding music. That's joyful. Weddings are great. Yay, weddings. But you get mad because I don't dance. I don't dance to your music and I don't eat to your feasts and you don't like that. I don't fit your agenda. I don't fit what you plan to do or what you plan to manufacture. And then he goes on to say, but you know, John the Baptist was here, and and if you remember John the Baptist, his cousin of Jesus, he was a real weird guy. When we were praying right before we came out with the, the band, Stephen made a an observation to the Lord, and in his prayer he said, Lord, we are a church of nuts. And I thought to myself, be with those who have allergies. (laughs) But you know, there's this thing. You know, we we are all unique and strange and we bring with us great things and painful things. We bring with us things that, that have gone well and things that have fallen apart. And we bring with us croaky voices when we're the only ones singing. We we bring with us Instruments that go out of tune. We bring with us bread that goes stale. And here he says, you know, John the Baptist came along. My cousin came along and he was weird and he didn't dress the way you dress. Remember, he wore camel's hair and he didn't, he didn't live where you lived. He lived out in the wild. He, he was a wilderness guy. He was a survivalist. And, and he didn't eat what you ate. He ate wild honey. And you rejected him and he was killed. And I come along and I do what you do. I wear what you wear. I go to your feasts. I sit at your tables. And then you go, hey, but you're a drunkard and a glutton and you eat with sinners. And it's almost as though Jesus is saying, it doesn't matter what my people do. You're going to find fault. Friends, <laughs> if we haven't figured it out yet, it doesn't matter what we do in the cause, in the following of Jesus Christ. Somebody's going to point at that and take issue. We're going to do something and somebody's going to go, how dare you? I don't like that. Stop doing it. If you've not had that experience, you're not living out your faith publicly very well. They had this issue with Jesus. They said, but you don't do what we do. You know, a a teacher of the law, a teacher of scripture should live to a higher standard. And you don't do what we do. You, You eat with Matthew, the tax collector. And you talk to the prostitutes and you touch lepers. You must be evil. There's this human propensity inside of us that says, if you don't conform to my values, I must find a way to minimize you and keep you at arm's length. And the easiest way to do that is to say, you must be evil. And, and sometimes we get ourselves to the point where we can even say, you must not even be human. Now, in, in our culture, hopefully we keep ourselves from those extremes. But in other cultures, that's easy to see. In Japan, pre-World War II, uh, Japan lived with an entire nation 
culture that worshipped one person, the emperor. And so in their culture, the Japanese emperor was God. That's, that's how that construct was. So Japanese people, almost without exception, when you ask them what they believe, they believe in their emperor, and the emperor is God. He's a human that has ascended to deity, and so whatever the emperor says goes. And so the emperor, <coughs> in his wisdom, or lack thereof, in his humanity, began to do what he thought was best for his nation, and as the culture developed down those lines, he realized that this tiny little island nation that was growing quickly could not sustain itself, that there were not enough natural resources for the nation of Japan. And he looked around and he saw that just across the South China Sea, there was a lot of land with a lot of resources that he could tap into and use for his nation. And so he began to say things about people who were not Japanese in terms of them not knowing the emperor who was God. And those people are so evil, they're not, they're not really even human. And so it led them to a place of cultural identity and cultural understanding that it was acceptable for them to cross the South China Sea and rape and pillage nation after nation probably the worst of which was China. Now, if you were to talk to a Korean, they'd probably debate that. They'd say, well, we suffered horribly as well. And this is a contest nobody wants to win. In China, in what historians now call the Rape of Nanking, the Japanese military came in and they wiped out the city, and they wiped out the people. They executed them in the most horrendous ways, the most inhuman ways, and it was acceptable because God told us that was, this was okay. The reason I bring this up is because there's, we as humans, once we start to rationalize our actions for the, for the sake of self-preservation and keeping myself going the way I want to keep going, we will use and abuse people around you to maintain that to the point of perpetrating evil. Whether, whether it's a husband who has such a low self-esteem that he can only get some sense of power and control if he hits his wife. Whether it's a boss who only seems to feel as though they're in control when they make an, employer's, uh, an, uh, an employee's life miserable for no good reason. Whether it's a neighbor who lives next door to you and just decides that whatever you do, it's going to be wrong with your yard. Whether it's a soldier who says, I don't need to care for this person, let's just kill him. when we begin to see other people simply as a commodity to be used or cast aside, we should be disrupted. And Jesus, he comes to the end of this little sermonette, this little 
talk that he's given. And he says, you know, you take issue with John the Baptist. You take issue with me. And we're vastly different, even though we're cousins. And I just want to tell you, wisdom is shown by what it does. So you nitpick at who I eat with and what I eat and what I do. But you're not seeing the fruit of who is healed and whose life is changed. That no longer matters to you. And so Jesus shook these conventions. As I was thinking about this, I come back to what Jesus talked about the most in his life and what he would do with that today. Um, there There are pretty much four I came up with in You can come up with another list, but I looked at this. There are pretty much four things that Jesus spent the most of his time talking about. The first is the kingdom of God or the kingdom of heaven. Over and over and over again, when Jesus spoke to his followers, he said, the kingdom of heaven is like this. And then he usually went on to tell a parable. Or he said, the kingdom of God is coming soon. Things like that. So there's these, these phrases, there's these sayings over and over again, and it is the number one thing he talked about was the kingdom of God, the kingdom of heaven. Another thing he spent a tremendous amount of time on, way more than we would be comfortable with, is he talked a lot about money. And he said a lot of really unconventional things about money. That's a whole other sermon series. He talked a lot about forgiveness. Over and over again, people brought up, hey, 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 there's, there's an injustice over here. Something's been done wrong over here. And time and time again, Jesus addressed that by saying, but I say you should forgive them. I say 70 times 7, you should forgive them. And that seems like a, a totally inconvenient concept when it comes to righting wrongs, doesn't it? And then there's this thing, and... Um, the writer Bob Sorge, if, you've, if any of you are familiar with him, he writes a lot about mission stuff. He's a great guy. He, he came up with this one. He said that he believes that, that the, the one thing we have to pay attention to that Jesus said was this concept of love your life, lose it. He said it shows up in all four Gospels and in, in, in a couple of the Gospels more than once. This thing that, you know, if you hold on to what you've got, you're going to lose it. But if you give it up for Christ, you gain it. You know, those who love their life will lose it, but those who lay it down for the sake of Christ will gain it. I say you should pick up your cross and follow me kind of statement. And, and, and so Bob Sorgas says, you know, I, I think we should pay attention to this. There's something unconventional about actually relinquishing to God because when we hold on to it, it just, it just goes away anyway. And that shakes us because all four of these things get at the way we, we live our lives, don't they? So I ask you personally this question, so where are you being shaken? What's shaking in your life? Is it something of the kingdom of God versus the values of the kingdom of this world where God says, you know, I want you to value what I value. I remember... Um, and some of you here will remember her well, but I, I remember uh, the first mission trip we took out of this church to Africa, and Nancy Bateman Kunkel went with us um, about six months after she lost her husband, Cal. Uh, and I got to tell you, about every time I'm up over here, not with these two guitars, but with the other one that was Calvin's, I remember him and miss him. 
Nancy was coming back from that trip to Africa with us, and we had the, you know, you have these long, grueling airplane rides with the layover in between, and we were catching up on sleep at Heathrow Airport, and she and I were sitting together, and Nancy said, you know, I have family that are worried about my retirement. <laughs> and she said, I'm crazy enough. I respond to them by saying, I think God has promised that if I honor him, he'll take care of me. And, you know, that stuck with me. <laughs> if I honor God, he'll take care of me. The kingdom of God versus the kingdom of this world. Now, that doesn't mean we're, you know, that we're irresponsible or undisciplined. That, but that does mean that ultimately when God calls us to do things, we do them because that matters more than the security that we enjoy. That love your life, lose your life thing. That if I offer something to God, he is faithful with those. And he does something far greater. I have a friend who likes to say, you know, God can do more with 10% of your income than you can do with 90. <laughs> oh, that hits close to home. Or that God would say, you know that person and what they've done? Think about forgiving them. Forgive who? Really? And I'm not just talking about the guy that cuts you off in traffic or jumps in the, the line to get to the cashier ahead of you. But what about the people that really and, really and truly hurt you deeply, scarred you? Forgive them? If you have not chosen the kingdom of God first, something will always be lacking. In fact, Christ said, seek first the kingdom of God and all these things will be added. And I'm not sure what all these things are, but I'm keen to find out. Seek, if you've not chosen to seek the kingdom of God first, it will, oh yeah, this quote by William Law, if you've not chosen this, the kingdom of God first, it will in the end make no difference what you've chosen instead. Well, there's a sobering thought, isn't it? In the end, it won't make any difference what you've chosen instead. So where then do we imitate Christ? Where do we get to shake things up? Where do we get to go in the room and shove things around and push back? Well, I would ask you to reflect on these questions when you think about that because we could just become really obnoxious people that others go and run and hide and say, don't hang out around them. They do things that make life miserable. And I think we have some brothers and sisters in Christ who have perfected that. <clears throat> so here's what I would ask you to evaluate. So ask yourself these questions. Where is the kingdom of God coming? Because where the kingdom of God is coming and arriving, those are places that God is shifting and moving, and we should be paying attention and responding to God in those places. So maybe that's with a friend who's asking those hard questions and asking deep spiritual questions because God is shaking and moving things. And their lives are already looking like a mess and we can speak into the mess. 
I've always been interested how people who have been completely shut off to me in a moment of crisis will listen to me as though every word I say is laced with wisdom. Whether it's in the funeral home or the hospital waiting room or standing there in the middle of the road after an accident, I've always been amazed when, when, they, when they respond to me as a pastor that they go, hey, you have anything to say about this? Well, you know, what if we talked last week before we got here? But in that moment of crisis, all of a sudden, I'm given a voice. Or that friend that in the moment of crisis goes, I have no idea what to do. Do you have any words of wisdom that you can go, I get to disrupt this. Then ask yourself this question, where should, or maybe even how should, our lives be lost or relinquished and saved? This is, a, this is a question I can't answer for you. Where do you feel like I'm just, I'm just grasping, I'm holding on, I dare not let go of this, and God's saying, yeah, let it go. Yeah, let it, let it go to me. You know, it's been interesting on the week that Billy Graham passed away. And a lot of grief. I mean, Billy Graham has been monumental in American history, if not the world history. <laughs> and uh, yeah, what a larger-than-life figure. I was privileged, like I assume some of you, I got to hear him speak live in person when I was a boy. I had no idea that I would look back on that event and go, wow, <laughs> how fortunate am I? But the grief that people are, are sharing, and oh my goodness, Billy Graham's gone, America's pastor. And I would just tell you that, uh, yeah, that life was lost, but that life was spent in the best ways. <laughs> and um, I'm, I'm kind of a fan of a writer. He's, he's a disruptor, but um, a guy by the name of Shane Claiborne, and I follow him on Twitter. Um, he's weird, I'll warn you, but he has tremendous faith. And he wrote a little bit of a tribute to Billy Graham. And I would guess that these guys would not agree on a lot of stuff. I mean, they would find a lot of things to disagree on. But Shane Claiborne said this. He wrote a tribute to Billy Graham and thanked Billy Graham and thanked the Lord that Billy Graham stood and spoke in some of the best ways for people to hear about the love of Christ. And he said, Pastor Graham, thank you because my wife wouldn't know you if you hadn't spoken. Gordon and Shirley are back with us. We missed you guys. I heard about Shirley's dad saying shortly before he died, you know, about, you know, his life was just a, a blip. It didn't really matter much. Only to, you know, hopefully now realize that he's in heaven and to look around and there are hundreds of people there because of his ministry. Somebody who relinquished the control of their life to God and then throughout the heartland had a ministry in small pockets and in small towns perhaps, but who knows the hundreds if not thousands of people who watched him and then listened to God or listened to him and then watched for God. And ask ourselves this question, are we simply asking God to dance to our own songs? 
Well, you talk about a convicting passage. As I read this again this week and was thinking about this, and I thought about how, you, you know, from time to time I put together an agenda <laughs> in various ways. I, I plan my day. I, I plan meetings for us. I, I help plan worship services. And I go, this is the way things are going to go. And I wonder how many times God just shakes his head and goes, you know, you're asking me to dance to your tune. And to be humble enough to say, okay, God, you know, if you want to disrupt now, Jesus, if you want to come now and rearrange the chairs, the instruments, the worship, that's okay. Because your disruption is always good. It doesn't always feel good. It doesn't always look like what we would value. But, when, Lord, when you start to disrupt things, it's always good.